All right, ladies and gents, we are back with another amazing episode of the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. This one's going to blow your mind. I suggest you get a paper and pen and get ready to literally have your mind blown wide open. So much information is passed on. I will be honest, this is a very high-level conversation. If you're someone who is not up to speed with some of the terminology of anatomy, of physiology, of biomechanics, there's going to be some moments where you're going to want to pause and you're going to want to look it up. My suggestion is for you to uh, listen all the way through this time. And then if you're very curious about this information, you love it, go watch on YouTube because Pat does an amazing job of giving us some visual demonstrations with his hands and arms to kind of demonstrate some of the things he's talking about. So we start off with a bit of a spiritual conversation, talking about the spiritual nature of life and how each of us happens to be on a parallel spiritual journey. We then get into talking about how that ties directly into the body, why training your body ultimately is the access point to unlocking your mind, unlocking happiness, peace, and spirituality in your mind through the body as the gateway point. Then Pat gets into talking about some really interesting things around how he organizes the body and his mind, and ultimately how we can learn to change it, how we can learn to change the structure. You guys have heard me talk about this before, structural alignment has to precede everything. So if you're not structurally aligned, going and trying to work hard is ultimately futile. Structural alignment precedes function, and then function ultimately precedes performance. And uh, Pat does an incredible job of unwinding all this stuff. My suggestion is don't listen to this on fast. I know some of you guys are used to listening to this on 1.5 or 2. Slow it down. Let Pat really get into explaining the uh, concepts he's trying to teach. And he does a really good job tying it all together at the end. As I said, some of this stuff is going to be high level for you. So give it your full attention. If you're driving in the car, you may want to listen to it twice. My suggestion is the second time to listen to it on YouTube. Today's podcast is brought to you by Real Mushrooms, the highest quality mushrooms on the planet. Take it from me. I've vetted most, if not all, these mushrooms. These are the highest quality organic mushroom fruiting bodies. So I hear people talking about mycelium. Mycelium is the part of the the uh, ground ultimately that the mushroom grows in. And if it's a naturally growing mushroom, the mycelium is very nutrient rich. The challenge with these farm grown uh, mushrooms is oftentimes they're grown in grain. So you're eating ultimately mycelinated grain and they're adding the weight of the grain to your mushrooms. So you're paying ultimately for grain. If you want 100% organic fruiting bodies, which in my suggestion you do, Head over to realmushrooms.com slash Ben and get hooked up with 30% off. First time customers are getting 30% off. If you're a returning customer, you're still going to get hooked up with an incredible 20% off. So thank you very much, Real Mushrooms, for being a longtime sponsor of the podcast. You guys know I, I bring the same sponsors back so that each and every one you can take action on it. If you haven't already, do so now. It's I mean, who knows if they're going to last forever. Obviously, they're enjoying sponsoring our podcast. You guys are doing a great job supporting them, and I really believe in these products. So, as you guys enjoy today's episode, when you're done, head over to realmushrooms.com/ben and get hooked up with thirty percent off. Enjoy the podcast with Pat Davidson. I've been watching your stuff for a long time, and when Jordan said you kind of had like a You've been going through a bit, a bit of a shift, both physically and, and spiritually. Like that's fucking awesome, man. I mean, it takes a lot to do that, especially mm-hmm. when you're so deep in what you do. I mean, I'm, I'm living that right now. It's you know, like I'm so deep in my world, and to, to try to remove yourself and kind of you know go meta and see and observe yourself is uh, it's it's not for every man. That's for sure, man. It's not not everyone is capable of that. So I commend you, man. Yeah, you know, and, and honestly, like there's some there's some short-term downsides to it i think too you know what i mean like just like the 
the way that, you know, I've rubbed a, a number of people the wrong way this last year. Yeah. And in what way? It's, well, I think that, you know, I've had, I've had some issues with like dealing with some anger things and, um, you know, just, but a lot of it, I feel like is just like, I, I, I think that in my day to day, I've kept my mouth shut in so many instances and just let things go. And I'm so much less willing to do that now where it's kind of like, if, if I feel like something is not being done the way that it should be, or I don't like how something feels like I'll speak up about it a lot more now than I ever would before. Mm -hmm. Um, but also it's like, it's kind of new for me. Like a lot of dealing with the emotional side of life is fairly new. And so I don't think I'm that good at it yet. You know, I think I need a lot more practice. And um, so it sometimes kind of comes out sideways or, you know, just problematic. You know, I, I think that I've just, I've created like a, you know, difficult life situation for myself relationship wise and everything else. And, it's, it's almost like, I feel like I'm just being, I feel like I'm being tested right now from the standpoint of, uh, you know, with dealing with other people, you know, I think I was such a solitary person for a long time and working in my own world, doing everything the way I want to do it. And now with some challenging people in my life, like learning how to you know, be less emotionally reactive to some situations yeah. and to really kind of figure myself out and my responses to things and like what my triggers are and everything else. While at the same time, like uh, not sacrificing my own beliefs or my, like what I think is right. So it's, it's been a lot of kind of, I mean, it's very vague, but the specifics are very contextual. So it's hard to, it's hard to get into that without like, you know, a, you know, the, a long backstory or something like that. But Man, overall, one thing, one, thing that's yeah, really helped me, one thing that's really helped me in that situation is, um, so I don't know if you know who Ram Das is. If you haven't read his book, it's worth a read, man. Ram, Ram Das wrote um, Be Here Now and then Polishing the Mirror. Both both absolutely worth it. And they're, they're, they're you know, a little fluffy, but he, they're wrote, written really well. And one thing he said that really resonated with me was every time. So, you know, Ram, I don't, do you know who Ram Das is? You know, it's funny. He just got brought up the, for the first time this past weekend. He worked yeah. at Harvard. Is that correct? With Timothy yeah, Leary? Yeah. Okay. So yeah. then he, him, him and Timothy Leary left and went, and he basically went East and found a guru and pursued with his guru. And regardless, so basically what his guru said is, is um, you know, he went through all this, this like deep spiritual training and kind of renouncing everything he had and himself. And the guru said, uh, you know, he said, I don't want to leave you guru. And he goes, uh, you'll never leave me. I'm always with you. And that resonated in his head. And so the way it, it came through to him was every time he came across a challenging situation to him, he would smile and go, I see you guru. Right. So every time there's something in his life where it's like, fuck, this is, this is really pissing me off. Or this is really like testing me who I am and testing my lessons and testing those things I've learned along the way. He smiles and he goes, I see you guru. You've come back to teach me. And so that's how he, how the guru, he believes the guru came back to see him, right. Or, or to, to be with him is in all those little tests. How are you being in this moment? You know, are you owning the principles that you're taught? Life is the lesson, right? You read the book, 
but life is the lesson. So I think that was a big takeaway for me, man. It's like every time I see those challenging situations and I go, I just smile, man. I'm like, it's an opportunity for me to, to figure this out, to be a better communicator, to learn myself and uh, learn my tendencies and maybe overcome my tendencies and go back toward the spiritual path. So that, I mean, that was my big takeaway. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but. Um, it makes it was, total sense to me. Yeah. yeah. Like, you know, during, uh, during the second ISM ceremony that I did, there was a point during the Icaros where I felt like the shaman was going to drive me insane. Um, you know, she was singing this song that was so repetitive and it sounded like, to me, it sounded like if, if you were trying to sleep and you were exhausted and a little kid was coming over and pestering you and like trying to like poke you and peel your eyelids open or something like that. And I was like, Oh my God, make it stop. Like, just please like anything, just, just like shut me off, put me to sleep, uh, anything to make this stop. And it occurred to me that like, you know, two nights prior in the first night of the ceremony, I had been experiencing like a death sequence. Like it, it felt like I was dying and going through the mechanisms of death. And I was begging to not die. And I was begging for, to hold on to everything. And it was like, oh my God, I have literally, I'm begging for the thing that I was begging to not have two nights ago. Literally the same thing. It's, it's such a perspective thing. But it was kind of like, wow, I am the most impatient person in the world. Like, I literally have no patience. I want what I want, and I want it now. And then I might want exactly the opposite thing on the same topic five minutes later. later. And I want what I want, and I want it now. And it was like, wow, I have so much in the way of, like, legitimate virtues to learn and integrate into my life. Like, I don't know anything about these things. I don't know anything about, I can, I could recite you the definition of patience, but I don't have it. I don't understand it. And, um, you know, I think that a big part of what I've come to realize is that I've gotten glimpses of these concepts, but it's the process of learning these things, like true learning and living with it is extremely challenging. And it's kind of like, it's that same sequence of learning that happens with anything where it's like, you know, you're unconsciously incompetent and then you go to conscious incompetence and then you can be consciously competent and finally unconsciously competent. And when it comes to like, you know, being patient or handling my emotions or having really good perspective on things that aggravate me, I think that I'm almost in this mixed stage of, unconscious incompetence for some of them and then conscious incompetence with others of them where it's almost like I, like what you're talking about with recognizing that this could be an opportunity for me to look at this as a challenge and a test sometimes i literally recognize that and continue to do the opposite thing right and just lose my shit or something like that and yeah. it's it's like oh, i did it again but it's, it's, it's such a process and it's such a, you know, you, I don't know how old you are. I'm, I'm going to be 42 in a couple of months. And, and certainly in the grand scheme compared to other people, it's young compared to other people, it's old, but it's, uh, you know, it's still 42 years of, of wiring and trying to, you know, live in a certain way and respond to things in a certain way. And then asking for a new way 
is something that's not going to be given or actualized without time, practice, and work. And it's that part of it, that work, that I feel like is where there's a tendency to give up. And it's not, it's no different to me than physical training. You know, it's like, so, you know, run like glycolytic training. If you want to be a great 400 meter person, like it's going to be a really challenging experience to get better at that. You're going to have maybe. to do things that make you really maybe. uncomfortable. So, man, I used to believe that too. Right. So we, us, us being the guys, you know, the, the typical like primal male, like I'm going to go and I'm going to grunt through it. I'm going to grit my teeth and go through mm. it. And then someone came on, came on, came into my life and recently said, what if that's not it? What if it's the easiest thing ever? And you can just decide in this moment to shift mm. it. It doesn't have to be a challenge. What if they're like, what if you can just decide and you can be that? And here's how, what they did for me. There, there's a few levels to this and I'll, I'll give you a quick explanation of how I understand it. So someone explained to me, she's like, that's part of you, right? That emotion is part of you. It's not something you want to go away. It will always be there. The trick is to be able to observe it and have a conversation with it and go, is this useful right now? And make a conscious decision like, am I going to express this emotion? Or does it control me, right? So like, I'm gonna have, it's like literally think of it like a separate segment of you. Like it lives, it's like your arm, it lives over there. It's like, is this gonna serve me in this situation right now? Yes or no? And uh, I can go, I can make the conscious decision and go, yes, I want to ride that horse or no, I want to put that one away. And not, it's like wearing a tool belt, right? So like when, I, when I'm feeling really emotional, really angry, it's just thinking of it as a different part of myself. It's not who I am. It's an expression of a small segment of me. So even though you've got this identity in your mind of, well, this is how I am, it's only a small part of you because you've also seen glimpses of this really, this really centered spiritual guy. You've also seen glimpses of this really loving emotional guy. What if you've seen glimpses of it all, it's just different parts of you. And to renounce it or try to push it back and say, I don't want it creates resistance. And you're like, I, I don't want that to come out. Well, no, that's, that's part of you. You just, it's like aggression. Like I, I know that I have an incredibly aggressive personality. I just don't choose to use it all the time. Right. So when you go into a situation with your children or with your wife or with your, your partner or in business, those are all different parts of you that can come out. As long as you're aware of that, like, I'm not trying to sit, tell this part to go away. Like that's my gift. That's your gift. I don't want that part to go away. I just want to be conscious enough of using that part of myself. Like, oh, am I using the right version of me right now? Am I, am I entering, you know, when you're entering a situation with your kids or with your partner, when I walk through the threshold, who am I choosing to be in that moment rather than like, I'm just going to, whatever, I'm going to be reactive to this situation that I'm a victim to it versus I'm walking in and I'm creating it. I'm empowered by it. Right. So like that, that's the framing that seems to work for me. And one thing that helps also that I'll add in, in, fin- in, in finality is like, Everyone else is only existing with the best version of themselves that they're capable of, just like you are, right? You're like, man, I'm just doing the best I can. So as soon as I, I come at the world like that, and I'm, when I'm engaging with somebody, if they're not meeting my expectations, because I'm, I'm getting pissed at them, it's just, well, that's my expectations. There's nothing to do with them. They're doing the best they know, they know how. So it's my expectations that need to change. And I can shift my expectations based on this reality that I know this person is doing the best they're capable of right now. What that did for me was it allowed me to have some compassion. I've never been a compassionate person. It also did something that was interesting. And I'll point out to you because I think you probably have a tendency to do this too. It tends to make you feel superior where then it's because you're like, well, this person's an idiot. Like their, their level of consciousness is here. And I did that for a while. I'm like, no, no, no. So someone taught me then is like, no, 
they just value things differently than you. You value things in order, you value things in direct, you value things in, in you know, pr process-driven, whatever. They may not value that, right? And you can't fault someone for valuing, you know, I don't know, television and McDonald's like what, or whatever it is. Like, that's just their values. So it doesn't make you better, it just makes them different. And so walking through that process for me really allowed me to just like meet people with without expectation. It's like, you are who you are. And if you can... Um, fit into my life and it betters my life and we can serve each other. Great. If not, I just keep going. And I have no attachment to, um, is this person an asshole or is this person an idiot or is this person trying to hurt me or like doing a bad job? No, they're just doing the best they can. They may not be the right person for that situation. Right. So that has helped me, man. Cause I feel like you and I are going through a lot of the same stuff. It sounds like it, you know, yeah. the, these, <laughs> these are a lot of, um, it's kind of cool because it's almost like, conversations with thoughts that I've had in my past totally. that you're bringing up yeah. and that are super pertinent and timely and hard to remember. You know what I mean? Like I, I sometimes think of like the things that I've learned in science and the things that I've learned along this, this spiritual journey and trying to find the common denominator between them. And I think about dominant response theory a lot with this, you know, it's like that's used with, with motor learning and it's kind of like, Let's say someone, you know, like Ben Simmons in basketball is often criticized for his jump shot being broken. And like mechanically, he does some things that are like funky and, and not in the optimal biomechanics of how to shoot a, a, a ball. And so in, pra in practice, I'm sure that they try to drill all of these, you know, new approaches, how to set the feet, how to follow through properly. But then you put him back in a game situation and he resorts back to his old style that's considered to be not, you know, mechanically sound. And I, I feel like that, that goes across the board with some other things too, because it's like, well, you're when, when the shit hits the fan and it's like, it's game time and it's on and the emotions kind of rise and all that sort of stuff. Like what, what dominant response is going to come to the forefront for you, yeah. you know? And and I think that conversations like this are so important because the thing that's going to rise to the forefront is the thing that you've, you've got the most reps on in some ways, you know, like it's yeah. it, like that, which you've done before the most number of times is still going to be the probabilistically the yeah. most likely thing that presents itself. And what you're talking about is like, you know, it's a new way of, of being a new way of responding. And at any point in time, you can remember it and kind of go there. And it's like, but there, it's, it's still like if, if you're not thinking, if you're not aware, the dominant response is going to come up. And right. if, you can, if you can catch it, if you can notice what's happening and kind of nip it in the bud and utilize the other approach, the more often that you do that, the more likely you're going to do that going forward. Um, it's almost, you know, it's like traveling from point A to point B, except that point A to point B is like, um, you know, there's a forest that you have to walk through. And previously, like you've carved a path that gets you from point A to point B. And now someone, something happened, like a, a wolverine decided to move into that path. And so now this path that used to be so useful for you is now really counterproductive for, for your, your traver traverses. And, it's kind of like, well, you're going to have to find a new path. But the first few times walking down that path, you're going to have to like trample it down some. You're going to have to 
bust out the machete and clean some stuff away. It's going to be a little bit slower. It's going to be a little bit more challenging. You're going to have to be super mindful of it. And the more times you go down that thing, the more you're going to kind of brush the leaves aside and make it more of a path. And, um, but it's, it's sort of like everything's difficult in the beginning and then things gradually become easier until they're kind of automatic. And, you know, and at that point in time, now maybe (laughs) that new path is got some counterproductive elements to it. And you might have to find another one like appreciating that, like, um, kind of like everything works, but nothing works forever. And that, you know, increasing your perspective of, of options and not setting your limits to where they currently are for the future is, is such a, particularly in the, in the world that we live in, like, you know, I think entropy is more than just this physical property. Like I think it, it crosses spectrums and goes into the way that our minds work and everything else. And like, the future is always going to be less predictable increasingly. Like the further into the future that we travel, the more unpredictable it will become and more chaotic and random. And therefore you have to expand your mind to be able to adequately deal with the future continuously. Like you have to match it. And otherwise you're going to live in the past. Like literally, you know, just the same way that, if you look at a deficient human brain, like it lives in the past. Um, Older people, like they tell you the same story over and over again. And then they gradually get to the point where they think that you are someone that is not here and now. They think that you are someone from the past. Right. And that, I think that I, 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 oftentimes I don't, I think that that is not so much this like critical point where it's like a disease. I think that it's this, it's just a demonstration, uh, an extreme demonstration of the tendencies that we all have just brought to its like ultimate presentation uh, and the, the dropping off of optionality and variance and contingency planning and expansion. You know, it's like you're, you, you go into a contraction mode rather than an expansion mode. And expansion is painful in a lot of ways, like you literally have to break things open and continuously put forth uh, things that you haven't done before and doing things that you haven't done before is legitimately the most challenging thing that you can possibly do from a movement perspective, from a thought perspective. Yeah. It's like, not only is it just hard in general, but the older that you get, the more the tendency is going to be to contract. Yep. And to break that, it's like, you know, you're, you're, I, it's hard to visualize it, but the gradient that would be challenging your ability to expand as you get older would be getting greater. So the, the actuality of being able to expand as you age becomes increasingly harder. So it's like, it's just logarithmically more difficult. Yeah. Uh, but what's the alternative? It, it basically accepting kind of like contraction towards death. Yeah, that's so true. Um, so one thing that came up while you were talking there, one of, one of the gifts that I think I've been afforded is, I'm sure you're, you're a meditator, man, but since meditating, I've actually been doing Sam Harris. I did Sam Harris's apps uh, every day for a year. And if you've done that yet, waking up, but it afforded me this opportunity to, in every, not every moment, many moments, I won't say every, many, many moments to be able to sit and observe, right? So I sit and observe myself. 
I, I tend, you know, you, you have a huge advantage as an athlete where you have incredible interoception, right? Proprioceptive awareness. And like, I can feel what's happening in my body when I'm standing here. I can feel what's happening in my body when I'm in a conversation with you. I can feel my tendency to start to feel certain emotions, feel certain thoughts come on. And rather than, um, you know, throwing them out and reacting and throwing, you know, some, some unnecessary response out there, I can just observe. And I go, where's my tendency here? And I think when people start to understand the inextricable nature of the body and the mind, and I can feel what my body is doing, and that'll give me an indication of my mind, what my mind wants to do, right? So if I can feel some emotion coming on in my body, the tendency then will be to react in the same way that my body feels. So my tendency will be to react psychologically in the same way that my body feels. So if I can learn to break those physiological patterns, we'll call them like those, those physiological tensions or, or signals and make it mean something different or create a signal in my body that I go, oh, I feel that anxiety. I feel that tension. I feel that anger kind of stirring. I can feel it and I can make a shift through my breath and through my physiology, through my posture that immediately changes my psychological uh, response. And I think that to me has been just a gift to be able to sit and so it's almost like this meta awareness, like I'm sitting here taking in what you're saying, and at the same time paying attention to what's happening inside my body. So any conversation I'm in, I can I can observe you and take that in and then observe my body and go, what is my body wanting to do? So not even thinking about my thoughts, because I don't think we can do that. I can think about my physiology, right? I can think about what my physiology is wanting to do. And I can, you know, obviously my thoughts are going to are going to want to have a pattern of reaction and responding. But if I'm paying attention to my physiology, I think I can make my thoughts go in, in more of a intentional direction rather than a reactive direction. And I think that's why what I'm kind of getting at here is the inevitable path for anyone who wants to improve their life has to be spirituality. Because as you see, there, there's so many innate tendencies that after 35 are just built in. And without awareness, without the ability to pay attention to my unconscious uh, reactions and, and, and patterns, I can't change it. So kind of one thing I talk about all the time is like awareness it has to be, I mean, I could be wrong. It could be something I'm missing, but it's the, it has to be the prerequisite to all change. So as I'm sitting here feeling what's actually happening, it requires me to be aware and, and uh, you know, have exceptional interoception or good interoception working toward making it better yeah. and then feel, and then learning to feel what that means or identify what that means or the meaning I've put on that feeling and then have the conscious ability to change it in that moment. Does that all make sense? It makes a hundred percent sense. You know, I, I know, um, I don't know if you've, if you've read any of Moshe Feldenkrais's work or, no. um, you know, he, he's, he's a brilliant man. I think when you get into some of the, the modern movement practices, like he's, he was a real pioneer back uh, yep. in the 1940s. And what's interesting about him was he was originally a classically trained physicist he actually was like a scientist that worked with the Curies. And then he, he was also a judoka. So he, he, he played in judo and was a really gifted uh, judo player. And he was very interested in the body. So he, he chose to like not pursue physics anymore as a profession, but instead to sort of switch over and, and work with people from the perspective of like, injuries and getting back to being able to move and, and all that kind of stuff. But he, he's got some great books. Um, you know, the potent self is probably his most prominent. Um, but then there is also one that that's called body and mature behavior. But in, in these books, like he equates a lot of things back to um, looking at 
the stereotypical movements and positions that animals will go into when they are experiencing certain emotional states. Mm-hmm. And what's, you know, he references a lot of Darwin's work too, because Darwin was big into this as well, where Darwin had a whole book on the emotional and physical presentation characteristics of different animals. You know, like you can tell when a cat is angry, you know, you can, you can, they give animals give off more obvious physical cues, but, but humans are very similar. Like you can tell what emotional state people are, are in based upon their physical characteristic. Now, one of the areas that I Feldenkrais really highlighted was that, you know, humans are born with only one innate um, reflex, and that is the, the falling reflex. And that's what doctors are testing with newborns. They'll, boom, they'll drop them down and the baby should cry immediately in response to that. And, you know, the following, the falling reflex is triggered by, um, you know, the vestibular system. And with the vestibular system, you're dealing with, uh, you know, the cranial nerve number eight that's going to go from the inner ear mechanisms at the superior olive, and it's going to travel to the brain. And what's interesting with the inner ear nerve uh, is that it will ultimately come into very close proximity with the vagus nerve. You know, just physically, it's very close. And when it is activated in this manner, when the doctor drops the baby, it will stimulate the vagus nerve and cause a very stereotypical response that's parasympathetic. Uh, And the response is that it's going to halt breathing. It's going to actually cause the cardiac system to, to create a brace. And it's physically the skeletal muscle going to create like a flexion response, a squeezing of the fist. Uh, it's, it's geared to basically prevent you from dying if you fell out of a tree, which makes a ton of sense for human beings since we evolved from arboreal apes. And it's the only real reflex that we're actually born with. So everything else that is a fear response is from an a priori perspective going to relate back to this falling mechanism. And we utilize the exact same stereotypical pattern response of the vagus nerve ultimately creating this halting of breathing this cardiac kind of constriction phenomenon and a skeletal muscle bracing flexion uh, and, and essentially like big isometric tension response. And, you know, the next thing that you typically see young children be afraid of is loud noises. You know, like babies have almost no sensory information. You go up to them, you rub their arm. They have no response to it. They don't even know how to feel their body at that point in time but they will respond to loud noises and it'll scare them. And ooh, it's the same kind of response. You can see with adults too, see it all the time in the city, people are walking down the street and out of nowhere, like a fire engine goes by and it's like the loudest blare. And everybody kind of, they hold their breath, they bring their arms up, they brace themselves the same way they'd brace themselves if they were falling. And, you know, with Feldenkrais, it was understanding that, you know, most of these movement restrictions that people end up having are in some way, shape, or form 
tied back to this original one of and 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 look like the with with his system with a lot of other systems even you know the russian approach to training like uh functionally integrated systems is their is their thought process and that goes all the way to the the nervous system where every every neuron has a motor response it has a sensory response it has an emotional response and it has a cognitive response you know it's got all of those things are baked in you can't actually tie you can't pull one out without the other ones falling in so every thought that you have has a has a motor component to it you literally can't think without muscles being involved you can't think without emotions being involved like artificial intelligence it doesn't need to abide by that 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 system like you know they can just have cognition without emotion or muscular response but as a human being like it's it's always everything rides together it's simply just like a gradient of how much of any of those things is going to be present one's going to dominate over the others but if you are going to be able to work with the mind and the cognition and all of those things there's multiple avenues that you can go down to be able to affect it because i could use sensory information to ultimately impact and work through certain thoughts i could use cognition to work through and impact certain thoughts i could use motor to work through and impact certain thoughts it's appreciating that there's options and channels that can get to the street the main the mainstream you know and where that sort of goes i think is exactly what you were talking about with utilizing respiratory components which is a direct interface with the autonomic nervous system you know it's kind of saying that a you know there's so many times where i see people post and like they're like oh this exercise is parasympathetic and i'm like oh like it it could be it couldn't be that's right. so up for interpretation like how do you know this are you measuring anything like this this is not really what when people are talking about these parasympathetic responses it's not that it's like oh i'm just going to lie down and do this 90 90 thing no that's not it man like you have an avenue that you can impact your autonomic system through and the autonomic system is one component of a much greater integrated system but it's it what i really think is important is is the appreciation of what you're talking about like i am able to kind of zoom like cuz you can get trapped in one of these things i'm trapped in my mind and my mind is going in circles okay we'll pull back from your mind and work on your body what's happening right now at the level of your gut what's happening at your feet what's happening with your hands you know are you gripping are you not at all on the floor is your gut tense with like a super tight rectus abdominis contraction like can you let that stuff go can you open your hands can you get more of your foot on the ground can you let your abdomen relax can you let an inhale fall into your back can you blow air out can you notice it and you know what that's like probably a way better way of trying to solve a mind problem than trying to bore deeper into your mind with your mind yep 
Yeah, man. I often talk about, you know, the stuff that the audience may not is like the three access points. And most people, when they talk about yeah, accessing the mind, they'll talk about, you know, the visual system. Maybe they'll talk about the breath. But I, like you just brought up, I believe the muscular system is an access point as well. And you'll know more about this in research than me is like, I can physiologically connect with every muscle in my body and choose to make it more tense or choose to make it more relaxed. And that's directly impacting my mind, as well as bringing me into the present moment, right? So the idea of like, I, if, if I if I come inside my body right now and I think of my breath or I think about the, my feet against the floor, I've taken my conscious thought away from that you know, negative loop of thinking and just pull myself out of it. So, you know, I, I say the greatest access point to your mind is your body. So if you want to, you know, trying to think your way out of, as you said, trying to think your way to this problem is effectively impossible in my mind. It's like go change your physiology, right? Change your visual system, change your muscular system, change your breath. And it could be as simple as a five minute walk or a five minute meditation or five minute breath work. And it pulls you out of that state. And all of a sudden now I'm in, in this like almost neutral, it's like flattening water, right? It's like calming the water. And now I can choose where I want to go rather than being the victim to the circumstance. And so let's just have you talk a little bit more about like access points, right? What, what does someone do right now if they're experiencing that, the stress? Response? I would love to. And I'm really glad that you brought up skeletal muscle. And, you know, like I, I, my original undergrad degree was in history, and I still think that there's so much value in knowing the history of these different fields of study. You know, people are all about just like trying to read the latest peer-reviewed research all the time. And I don't have, trust me, I do not have any problem with that. And, but the thing about the latest peer-reviewed research is that whoever's writing that stuff went back and did their own history lesson as well. And they saw where this information came from, what the original thoughts were. And, and, and it's funny. And I just want to acknowledge one thing. Yeah. And sometimes the source data isn't accurate, right? Sometimes we're basing mm -hmm. information that we're, that we're you know, coming to conclusions on now on inaccurate source data. So it's so important that you go back and go, what is the source of this belief that I have? And was that an accurate assumption to begin with? I think I find that a lot in science, man. People are basing their, these, these miraculous discoveries and assumptions on things that maybe are kind of shaky to begin with. Yeah. Uh, you know, starting assumptions, if you ever go in and read, uh, you know, Bayesian work uh, from Thomas Bayes, like in, in economics, and most research now is based on Bayesian approaches. And um, but with with Thomas Bayes, what he was he, he made sure to point out, like, if your starting assumption is inaccurate, you can find wildly inaccurate conclusions. Yes even if you think you're doing everything right. Uh, so beware of that. Like your starting assumption has to be so rock solid. Otherwise you're going to find yourself down a, a wild goose trail thinking that you're like really discovering like the accurate endpoints. But um, you know, that that's the, where I was kind of going originally was with Vladimir Yonda and Yonda is such a pioneer in the world of physical therapy. And you could legitimately say that physical therapy is divided into the structural approach and the functional approach. And that the structural approach people are going to be the ones that, that like, it's kind of still Sarman versus Yonda. You know, Shirley Sarman, Vladimir Yonda. And Sarman had this very, very anatomical presentation trying to find the point of instantaneous center of rotation of a joint. And when the point of instantaneous center of rotation is shifted from where the physiological optimum is, it's due to likely having a tight 
short muscle on one side of the joint while the other side of the joint has a longer low tone weak muscle that's you know quite honestly i i just bastardized and summarized so much profound work into a small snippet statement that people feel comfortable with and it makes me uncomfortable to do that but it's to get across the point that that's like one side of the equation and that is kind of like okay strengthen the long weak side and lengthen the short tight side and again that's an oversimplification but people know that and so i'm just going to let that kind of stand as as the structural approach side and the functional approach side with which yonda started is based on looking at the skeletal muscle tissue as a story of what's happening at the level of the brain and yonda said that the skeletal muscle is at the crosshairs of the nervous system and i love that term crosshairs for this because it's exactly the midpoint between the afferent and the efferent sides of the nervous system. Um, so it's, it's a perfect term to describe what the, the, where the skeletal muscle is in relation to the nervous system. And Yonda would say, he used the term lesion a lot. Like lesion gets kind of a bad, as soon as I say lesion, people are like, oh my God, a lesion. What the hell is that? Like, do I have AIDS at my am president presenting at the skin with this? Or, you know, but he would term it a brain lesion for every muscle that would be in a state of either excess tone or inadequate tone, long and weak or short and tight. And Yonda originally coined these kind of terms like cross syndrome stuff upper cross syndrome, lower cross syndrome, you know, lower cross syndrome being when the pelvis is anteriorly tipped and we have short, tight hip flexors and we have long glutes and hamstrings and, um, you know, upper cross syndrome where the person is kind of like internally oriented with their arms and their head is driven forward through space. So they have, uh, you know, long, weak, deep neck flexors, short, tight suboccipitals. They have short, tight pecs and long, weak rhomboids. And, you know, what, and then there's layered syndrome, which is that you have both upper cross and lower cross at the same time. Uh, and that'll feature kind of like long, weak uh, abdominals as well. Uh, that's in the lower cross and short, tight uh, posterior intercostals and spinal erectors. So Yonda was of the belief that this is not so much a function of, you know, the muscles are telling the story of what's happening at the brain would be how, how he would kind of think about it. And a lot of his work was done with people that existed in spasticity it's like spasticity-based patients, people with cerebral palsy and other spasticity conditions. And you can see these stereotypical patterns of upper and lower cross presentations driven to the maximum in spasticity patients. Um, and so he would say that it's, it's indicative of greater amounts of motor neuron uh, lesion or sensory neuron lesion. And the way that he would approach this stuff is that you have to send more information back to the brain, okay, as a physical therapist. Now, 
this could change. Like if you go into like the, some of the books that Norman Doidge has written recently, the brain that changes itself and the brain's way of healing, it kind of picks up on a lot of this uh, functional approach stuff. And it really speaks to the idea that like you can change, like he, he's gone in in his books and talked about Parkinson's patients and autism and um, you know, just everything under the sun that could be related to like motor based problems and, and different interventions that go directly to the brain that can impact uh, mostly the hypothalamus and the hypothalamus being sort of this like central point where if I activate every part of the hypothalamus, the hypothalamus has wires that go to every other part of the brain. So if I activate the hypothalamus, I activate the entire brain and I light it up like a stadium lights and a ballpark where, where it's a primetime game at night. But um, in, in those books, it talks about using um, other inputs to different sensory systems. Like it, it chronicled um, Alfred Tomatis, the French doctor who invented something called the electric ear, which he originally used to give opera singers the ability to sing notes they lost as their careers aged. He discovered that as soon as the singers lost the ability to hear the note, they could no longer produce the note uh, acoustically. So he built the electric ear, which gave them the ability to have the frequencies that they no longer could naturally hear sent to their brain. And as soon as their brain was able to hear it again, they could sing it again. Wow. And what's interesting is Tomatis's electric ear also then began to be used with autism-based cases. Uh, a lot of people think autism is actually a hearing disorder, because the temper tympani muscle in the inner ear is usually, uh, you know, long, like long and weak in people with autism. And they don't have the ability to zoom in auditorily. You know, you can zoom in with your eyes. But if you're in a crowded restaurant or something like that and you hear something interesting at the table next to you, you can zoom in with your ears and selectively listen to something more specifically and you do that by altering the tone of your temper tympani muscle, where autistic children oftentimes have a weakness of that muscle, and they have a hard time differentiating between sounds. So all sounds are kind of coming in in an overwhelming manner. And autistic children usually present with very stereotypically the same sort of a skeletal muscle situation, where they're oftentimes toe walkers and their weight is too far forward. And they will present with kind of a, um, you know, a crossed syndrome presentation. <clears throat> so when Yanda was writing, he would say that, you know, the only approach that we have is to drive information in from the skeletal muscle. And that that's essentially what physical therapists usually do, is they're trying to work at specific parts of the skeletal muscle system where there's higher sensory input that can go back to the brain. He pointed out that the soles of the feet were an information hub. Uh, his other information hubs were, were some other ones that you kind of can typically think of. Uh, but, you know, I don't know if it's Yonda's work, but sacro, um, you know, craniosacral therapies are based on this stuff where the sacrum is an information hub, the cranium is an information hub, hands, the visual system is an information hub. Essentially what it's talking about, though, is that the brain craves information, sensory information being sent back to it. Any of these things are possible centers. 
the like there's another piece of technology called the pons device that was invented at the university of wisconsin and it attaches to your tongue and the pons device is able to utilize the tongue as a direct pathway to the hypothalamus and then light the hypothalamus up and then they give you they try to feed you specific sensory stimuli that would be in the area that you're lacking the most for instance like they've allowed blind people to be able to see with the pons device by hooking them up to uh external agents like i don't know exactly how that works but essentially like the person will be hooked up to some kind of a visual piece of technology while using the pons device and by activating the hypothalamus and lighting up the neural networks that have become dormant the visual like you don't see with your eyes you see with your brain right. the visual systems information center is able to be activated for vision based information which is essentially just light coming into your brain uh, and they've really worked with a lot of Parkinson's patients and they've seen like dramatic, almost immediate kinds of responses where you can take a Parkinson's patient that's extreme and basically have them dancing and doing other things that are pretty sophisticated as long as they have the pawns device in. And then they gradually try to reduce the amount of pawns exposure over time to the point where the person's neural network has been uh, revived and is now functioning on its own without the assistance of that device. But, you know, this is all stuff that I would say began with Yonda's theories on the, you know, the functional approach to recovery, which is a neurological approach to recovery. Now, for me, within the model that I used, I basically look at the, I, I utilize both approaches. I just simply start with the structural approach. And then I transition to the functional approach because I believe that certain shapes are more suitable for re certain responses, like balls roll and blocks slide and top spin. And if I know what shape a pelvis should be and a rib cage should be, then I'm more likely to get the correct information to be able to travel to the brain so that I can have the sensory information traveling. Because ultimately the thing that people that subscribe to the functional approach can't talk about is that the brain is a black box. You send information to it and then you have no idea what's happening. You know what I mean? I still have no idea what's happening. I just have a hypothesis that the more organized towards optimal, the shape of different structures can be, the more likely it is that the sensory information that's going up will be organized in a more meaningful manner to lead to a more predictable stereotypical output on the efferent side. That makes a lot of sense. And I'm sure there's a lot to un un unwind there for our listeners, but um, yeah. something that comes to mind is addressing the structural side. If you can give us some practical examples, I mean, obviously, sure. you know, as far as like, the sensory information you mentioned, just to kind of rephrase, it's the feet, it's the hands, it's the it's the uh, cranium, um, maybe other maybe visual system. As far as like sending yeah. more information to the brain, but if you were to take a structural approach and try to realign somebody's structure, what does that yeah. look like? Is it like yeah? Sure. So, you know, I I utilize table tests on the arms and the legs. I put the person through very standardized table tests: uh, flexion, extension 
internal rotation, external rotation, abduction, and adduction of, of, of each arm and each leg. And I measure those things because I think that they give a window into the, the shape and the presentation of the thorax and the pelvis. Okay, so if someone, and I divide each group of tests into, there's a family of flexion, abduction, and external rotation, and there's a family of extension, adduction, and internal rotation. Um, and so it's kind of like, if you pass all the tests that would be in each family, I would say, okay, your, your thorax, for instance, if you pass the flexion, the ER, and the abduction, your thorax has the ab ability to be able to present with this family, okay? If you fail one of them, I would say your thorax is unable to present with this family. And vice versa with the other family of IR, adduction, and extension. Um, so from there, I, I just I look at that at all four quadrants and I see, do you have the ability to fully express each family at each limb? And from there, I then take a look at the infrasternal angle of the ribs. And the infrasternal angle is one that should be somewhere around 100 degrees roughly. If it's significantly wider than that, and it almost looks like a straight line going across the body, then I would say that the person is biased towards more of the internal rotation, adduction, and extension side of the picture. If the person's infrasternal angle is very narrow, I would say that their tendency is to be biased towards more of the ER abduction and flexion side of the of the that that family over there, and so it's kind of like first so just, I want to take a look. I just yeah. want, when you say bias towards, does that just mean uh, that that's their tendency and when at, re, at rest? Yeah, yeah, or just at rest and dynamically, okay. like. Um, but look, like if the person is expressing full range of motion in all directions with all tests, they're good to go. Like they're 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 biased in the direction, but they're able to. So I almost think of it as like this North Pole and the South Pole of movement yeah. possibilities. I want to see that for most people that you have the ability to capture the North Pole and the South Pole. And if you do, you're doing great. Your your function is is optimal. I'm going to leave you alone. I'm not going to make you cognitively aware of this stuff. Like just train, do the things that you want to do, and you're probably going to be pretty much okay. You have the ability to learn how to do things pretty optimally. If you are severely limited in your range of motion or extremely excessive in your range of motion, like you're no longer in the mid zone of where human beings should be. And look, like this isn't just me, like this is textbook kinesiology stuff of like, you know, the, uh, the, the femur should be able to externally rotate 60 degrees and internally rotate 45 degrees. And that's going to be in any textbook that you pick up, you know, like this is, agreed upon definitions of range of motion that are human norms for these things. And if you've shifted significantly from human norms, well, that's no longer normal. And I want to see like why you're there and what to do about it. So ultimately, like I'm, I'm looking at what shape tendency you, you may be going into. So you know, uh, 
I'm going to take a look at what the shape of the infrasternal angle is. And if I see that there's, so as a, for instance, if you present with this really wide position, that is indicative that you should own the internal rotation, adduction, and extension side of the family. If you don't have any of those measures and you do have the opposite measures, you've gone through a process of extreme compensation in your system. You shouldn't be able to do those other things. I'm curious how the hell you managed to actually do those things, okay? You lost what you should be able to do and somehow you've overcompensated and gained things you shouldn't be able to do. So the first thing that I'm going to try to do is change your shape and see if I can find, and, and the infrasternal angle is one proxy measure that I use to try to discern your overall shape. And with that, I ha I'll have, a, you know, I'll utilize specific exercises and have you breathe in a very specific way that should be able to reconfigure your infrasternal angle shape back towards normal. Now, if I'm Over working time with or wide, pretty damn fast. I mean, at oh. the seminar I did with Jordan, I took a wide person and they had limited range of motion with all their table tests. We did about six breaths and we changed their table tests and, and made their infrasternal angle much oh. closer to normal. Um, and this, you know, it's like, it, it, I'm used to doing this. This is kind of what I do for a living. Um, every time someone sees it for the first time, they're like, what? Like, how, I didn't know that was a thing, but it's like, yeah, it's a thing. And like, it's just, it's having an idea of the very specific, like the more specific I can be with joint positioning and respiratory strategy, the more likely I am to reposition you and to give you access back to motions that you essentially should have, but now don't have for whatever reason. And, um, so with a wide person, I'm going to attempt to put them uh, in a position where I'll bias them towards the opposite pole of ER, flexion, external rotation. Um, I'll also cue them to exhale like they're blowing through pursed lips, like they're blowing up a balloon or blowing air through a straw. And the reason I'm doing that is because I'm going to recruit the external obliques as a secondary muscle of exhalation. And the external obliques, when they function in that way, they create a bucket handle down action on the infrasternal ribs. Now I just have to make sure you hold some pressure while you inhale so that your inhale doesn't immediately blow your infrasternal ribs back up and away in a bucket handle up presentation. If I can do this for you over the course of three, four breaths very effectively, and I bucket handle you down on the exhale, and I create an inhale going elsewhere in the body, it's going to ultimately expand and externally rotate parts of the thorax and pelvis that were not externally rotated before. You had just compensatorily, excessively externally rotated the lower ribs and not like that's the only place you were expanding. Now I basically rip open all these other areas of your thorax and your pelvis that now we're beginning to externally rotate and inhale. And I go back and measure and I see that I closed this sucker down. By closing this down, I made everything else open. Kind of like what I was talking about earlier. You've only been walking down one path from point A to point B. 
And now I'm going to take that path away from you. I put a Wolverine in this path and you can't walk that way anymore. And now you're going to have to find some alternate ways to get there. And it's going to be through your sternum. It's going to be through opening your pelvic bowl. It's going to be through opening up the, the posterior rib space and putting air into your posterior lungs. And when I do this, I'll see the infrasternal angle change. And all of a sudden I start seeing range of motion improve in all of the places that I needed it to improve. Now that I've done this, it doesn't mean you're going to be good at exercise. But what I've given you is an opportunity to enter motor learning 101. Now that you have access to these new joint positions and ranges of motion, I have the ability to actually coach you. And me coaching you is the functional approach to working with the human being. The prior one was the structural approach. Now that I've changed the structure, I can have an opportunity for my functional approach to be done with the most economical and efficient manner that I can possibly get it done. I'm sure you've coached a lot of people. And when you're trying to coach someone into doing something that they can't do, it's extremely frustrating for you and for them. And that's what I want to avoid. So my approach to training, the model that I've built, is essentially one that tries to systematically discern that which someone can do and can't do so that you don't try to coach them into something they can't do, but you now have a system on how to open their playbook so that you can, they can now potentially do this thing so you can now potentially coach them. And now that you now can potentially coach them, what is actually the most logical, reasonable, principle-oriented place to start them for an activity that you have increased the probability that they're going to be able to do properly, what is that drill? And now what is a systematic way to strip this drill down so that it becomes progressively more challenging, but the person, once they learn the concept from a functional perspective, that they can apply that concept across the board to other variations of this same concept until they land on a terminal exercise choice or group of lateral choices that are perfect for the adaptation that they're asking you to give them as a coach. Some people want to get jacked. Other people want to play French open tennis. Some people want to play defensive line of football. Other people want to golf. There are certain exercises that make sense for each population. Everybody wants to be able to do those exercises properly. A lot of people lack some fundamental mechanical consideration that would allow them to do that movement optimally. If I can unlock the movement and then give you a chance to do the right drill for your adaptation and coach that thing so you can express it to the best degree possible, now I can quantifiably move you forward and make you into more of the thing that you're trying to become. I think in five minutes, you just summarized what's missing in every training program, every personal trainer, ultimately everyone that I've encountered in the last 10 years doesn't, doesn't have that as part of the program. There's no structural alignment. There's no motor learning. There's no, there's no that coaching to learn those foundational things. Everyone's just skipping over that part and going straight into like, Hey, I'm just going to go ahead and work hard. I think that's the solution and everyone gets broken. You know, I can't build this body part or this joint hurts. So I can't do this. I can't do that. 
well, cause, and this is, I've, I've been, I've been screaming this for years. It's like, you're missing the two most important pieces, right? Can you do it? Can, do you have someone who's capable of coaching you to do it correctly? And then we have an opportunity to, to have amazing potential, right? Amazing performance. And I'll often say, I think everyone can have really great performance provided they don't have really bad structural limitations or, or calcifications or whatever. But I think everyone has the, the ability to build an amazing body or build for amazingly well. They're just missing the two biggest steps and they can't jump straight into working hard because when you do, it's like driving a car faster with bad alignment, right? You simply can't do it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I think that I've, my background, I came from sports performance with, you know, mixed martial arts, baseball before that, uh, strongman after mixed martial arts and coaching with college sports and working as a professor and kind of, you know, working with pro strength and conditioning coaches, Olympic strength and conditioning coaches. And then I, I left that world and I came to New York City and worked in personal training. And it was kind of like such a culture shock for me to come to New York City personal training. And it still is like I feel like I'm affronted with illogical things that are maddening to watch. And that's my brain's its own issues. You know, when I talk about the beginning, like like some anger responses and like things like that, like. I get driven crazy watching things that are illogical be successful from a financial perspective. And, you know, that's something I have to work on. Why does this affect me so strongly? But it's, you know, that, that's a separate conversation. But what it did was I've never been someone that is kind of like, you know, just complain and not do anything about it. Like I tried to systematically go through every possible solve that I could think of for how to take, because personal, I think if you don't work in personal training with general population clients, you are missing out so much on how to figure out how to really coach at a high level. Like it's not that hard to coach professional athletes. Hey man, uh, just kind of keep your left foot a little bit more supinated while you're doing that squat and they do it instantaneously. And they're like, Oh wow, that made a big difference. Cool. Okay. You try to say something like that to a general population client. First of all, they're not listening. Second of all, they can't do it. Third of all, they're somewhere else. And it's like, okay, how do I never like, I, I probably have a pathology when it comes to experiencing failure. It affects me way too deeply and it makes me want to never have that happen again. And I will go back and try to problem solve for it and front load with solutions so that I don't have the back, the back end work. You know what I mean? But I'm grateful for that because, you know, when every time I've done this kind of a thing, I've ended up creating something super useful for myself and, and also typically uh, for other people too. And, and that's sort of what happened with this, where it's like, you know, like there's got to be a way where I can see anybody be able to exercise with competency and then take that competency and build off of it so that they can, in fact, have the body and movement capabilities that they really want. But like you said, you know, it's, it's like the choices that people make. And, and this is something I've said a, a bunch of times, and I don't know if anybody else likes this quote from me, but I like it. I will never question somebody's goals. 
whatever your goals are or your goals, and it's not my business to tell you what those things are, what they should be, but I will relentlessly question your methodology on how you're choosing to get there. And that's sort of like the thing that I see as a big problem in personal training is that people come in to work with trainers and they give them certain goals. And then the choices of exercise and the approach to dosing out the exercise that the trainer gives them are incongruent with what the person's goals were stated to be. And like, how do I work through that in as empirical a manner as I possibly can so that, you know, and, and for me, it's like, if I'm directly working with somebody, I have the ability to, to get the results that I'm looking for on a very high probability perspective. But can I actually take my entire thought process and jot it down and present it to anyone so that if they understand it, they could literally make the same decision as me and arrive at the same place as me and coach the drill the same way as me. Now, that might be the most egotistical thing that I could possibly say or think, but there is, some, there is a gift inside of an ego if it's harnessed and used to create something. And I do think that people would benefit for, from, from having my thought process in terms of working directly with another human from a physical training perspective. Like I am very bad at almost everything in life. I am terrible at almost everything, except for its very narrow number of things. And those things generally revolve around the human movement system, understanding it, assessing it, and then harnessing it to help people towards their training goals. That's about all I really feel confident in, in anything that I bring to the table in life. And so that's the thing that I kind of chose to bring to life to the greatest degree that I possibly can, and to try to as accurately and thoroughly give this as a rendition to other people to be able to utilize in their approach to the people that they'll directly work with in, in their professional career. It's impossible though, isn't it? Like they have to have your, your prerequisite knowledge to be able to think the same way, right? That you can create protocols where it's like, hey, do this step by step. Mm -hmm. But when something comes out that's that's an outlier, it simply can't can't continue. So that's the challenge. I mean, it's sure it's taking you 20 years plus of, of relentless focus on that single thing. As you say, everything else has fallen away. This is the one thing I'm really good at. And for someone else to commit that, especially in this day and age, it seems like it's kind of countercultural to be committed to one thing for a long period of time. So, uh, man, I, I commend you for putting that those unconscious thoughts down into a conscious process because a lot of us can learn from it. And I love being able to learn this uh, information, even, even at a surface level. I'm, I'm very much uh, inclined to go and learn more. Uh, one thing I want to ask, though, is um, as far as like applicable uh, you know, action items that our listeners might apply right away to get more sensory information into their body, as you know, as you mm -hmm. just said, the, the average person is very much disconnected from their body. Do you have like a couple go-to things that everyone should be doing on yeah. a regular basis? hundred percent. Like, I mean, like I really tried to systematize this to the level where it is, it is done for you. You know, like I give the analogy of the McDonald's cash register a lot. Like 
I don't know if you're if you've ever seen a McDonald's cash register, but the person doesn't have to type in the amount of money that it costs. Like if I come in and I order number two, you don't have to know what the number two costs. You just hit the picture of the number two on the cash register and it sends that into the system. The person in the back folds your quarter pounder with cheese. They package your medium fries. They give you a medium sized cup for your drink. It slides down the little metal chute. It's on a tray. It's given to you. Like so much planning went into that. It's insane. Like I don't need the cashier to know how the burger was made, where the farm is, what the processing plant looks like, what the mechanism is for delivery of the soft drink through the, the pipes that comes out of the fountain. I don't need them to understand the process of making the paper cup and the plastic, but someone has to know how to do every component of that thing. And so I oftentimes think of that when I'm trying to create these things. Like I don't need everyone to know the story of Vladimir Yanda and his personal battles with polio and how that led him to really like think about things from a brain perspective and movement. You know what I mean? Like I don't need people to know Shirley Sarman's backstory, but all of that backstory helped me to understand my approach into how I put this together. And like, I, you know, I wrote a book on this stuff, um, a coach's guide to optimizing movement and the backstory of all of these things, I put it in the book. Like, I just feel like that's how a good book is written. It's a story. It's got some depth. It's got all this background stuff. But the ultimate model that I created is, in my mind, fairly simple for anybody to be able to utilize. Uh, you know, I divide it into seven pillars. And the thing that you just asked about essentially lives inside pillar number three, which I call movement standardization. And underneath movement standardization, I break it down into three planes of motion, sagittal plane, frontal plane, and transverse plane. And I say that for each plane, there are sensory motor competencies that should be present in a drill to let you as a coach know that the person is performing the exercise with competency. So the motor uh, competencies are the way that it looks when the person is performing it. You as a coach can look at the person and you say, okay, that front squat looks really good, all right? And that cable chop looks really good or fill in the blank, that looks really good. This person looks great while they're doing it. Uh, the sensory competencies are the things that people should feel while they're doing the activity. And they serve as a checks and balances system to each other. If it looks good, let's say it's the same front squat I'm talking about. Hey, that looks amazing, man. That's wow. But then you're like, hey, you know, how'd that set feel? And they're like, well, I really felt it like a cramping sensation in my neck back here. And my QL on the left side feels completely lit up. You're like, well, that doesn't sound good. So whatever it is that I think I was watching that was great, something's off there. You know, so what I tried to provide is a sagittal plane exercise like a front squat it should have things that you look for from a motor perspective. And the thing is, I want centering of the center of mass. I want the center of mass of the skull to be over the center of mass of the thorax, which is over the center of mass of the pelvis. And that would be if I'm looking at you from a profile or like Alfred Hitchcock view perspective. Um, but how do I know that it's actually centered? You know what I mean? Like, that's a question to me. Like people are like, look at the neutral spine here. And I'm like, can you see this person's spine? No, you're just commenting on the fact that you think 
that their ear is over their shoulder, which is over their hip. But how'd they get there? It might not be centered. Their thorax might actually be shooting forward out of their body. Their pelvis might be tipped forward going out of their body. Their center of mass might be forward excessively. It just looks lined up to you. And then the person's like, yeah, my knees hurt. And uh, I felt like a real stretch right down here in my lower left abdomen. Okay, well, those are indicators to me that your center of mass is way too far forward. Um, and that's not good. Like, that's actually the opposite of good. So I've got this motor standardization of sagittal plane drills, skull over thorax over pelvis. And then there are some things that I want someone to feel when they're doing that drill. And the things that I want them to feel are the hamstrings, the glutes, and the internal obliques. Those are the hamstrings and glutes are muscles that are on the posterior side of the pelvis that attach to the ischium that essentially prevent the pelvis from falling forward through space. <clears throat> the internal obliques are muscles that wrap around from the back and come up and around almost like hooks that grab onto the front side of the rib cage and they prevent the rib cage from tipping backwards and falling off the body backwards. So it's almost like the hamstrings and glutes prevent the pelvis from falling forward and the internal obliques prevent the thorax from falling backwards. And if they're equally working on both sides, they keep you equally centered from a sagittal perspective. And now that's optimal. That's great. That's wonderful. That's a standardized sagittal skeleton. What happens? What do I do if the person is doing the sagittal drill and they don't have any feeling coming from any of those areas? Well, I have a troubleshooting checklist that I send people to. And the thing that I say is, if you want the person to get the sensation and the activation and the recruitment of these muscles, the thing that you need to feed them more of is more of their heels. Here's my sensory depot that is my ultimate troubleshooting solution for a sagittal plane drill that is happening in an in uh you know, incompetent manner. If the person manages to feel and use more through their heel, what that does is it pulls the center of mass back. The center of mass was most likely leaking forward too far. By sensory information coming through the heel, it's going to give the person the shift posteriorly of their center of mass. When the center of mass is pulled backwards, that will pull the pelvis under the thorax and it'll pull the front of the thorax down towards the pelvis. Both of those are structural solutions to being able to give ideal leverage to the hamstring glutes at the level of the pelvis and the internal obliques at the level of the thorax. It's kind of going inside of these different models and discovering kind of a linchpin to what connects the structural approach of Sarman to the functional approach of Yanda. And at the same time, it's kind of like in the trenches coaching information that anybody that's worked in a weight room would be like, yeah, they should probably get more, heat, more weight on their heels while they're trying to squat. So it's sort of like that which has been vetted by time in the coaching world makes a lot of sense. Why it makes sense is depth and confusing and mixed, you know, mechanistic things. And I only need the person to know that sagittal plane drill 
should witness alignment and should feature glutes, hamstrings, and internal obliques. And if the person doesn't have enough glutes, hamstrings, and internal obliques, give them more heels as a reference. And if you really have them find and feel their heels in whatever way you want, put a block under their heels, uh, push into their heels, put a towel under their heels and try to pull it out. I guarantee if you do that, you're going to get more of what you want because you've literally shifted their center of mass in a posterior direction, which will be like everything that you feel and the way that your body responds is still going to be tied back to that thing that I talked about that Moshe Feldenkrais referenced, which is falling. And when you fall, you're going to have a stereotypical problem, a very stereotypical skeletal muscle response of the center of mass going too far forward and then bracing and tightening and getting nothing but inappropriate kinds of responses. If I can bring your center of mass back, it decreases the perception of falling. If I decrease the perception of falling, I decrease tone. I de like it's, it's, there's 20 different explanations and mechanisms that I can ultimately go back to and use as collaborating pieces of information as to why this makes sense. I, all I need a coach to understand is, hey man, look for alignment, look for these things to be on. If you don't feel these things, feed them more heels, good to go. There's the number three, hit the button, the burger's gonna come down the chute, the fries go in the box, and the drink gets filled and given to the customer. Right. All this information is your book, Pat? It's all in there, man. It's a, it's a lengthy book. And um, my hope is that even, I know that the model itself is wrong. Every model is wrong. Some models are more useful than others. I think it's a useful model. If people are willing to go through the process of learning the model and practicing it a little bit, I guarantee it will make their job infinitely easier on the back end. You know, all I ask from people is a little bit of upfront work in the beginning. And if you do that, I really think that your back end is going to be really, really easier in the long run. And you're probably going to just dramatically increase the probability of, of having success with the work that you do, both for your own training and with your, your, your business of training other people. Tell them the coaches out there where they can learn more from you or maybe people who want to reach out to you to work with you directly. Sure. I think that, you know, I, I have, uh, you know, my Instagram has links to everything from it. So it's, it's at Dr. Pat Davidson, uh, DR period, Pat Davidson. Um, you know, I have a new website that's launching and, um, it's, I'm actually not even sure what the address of it is at this point in time. I'm pretty terrible with those. Like I said, I'm really good at like two things in life. And other than that, I'm like absolutely terrible. You know, I have somebody that runs my social media and website stuff for me. So I, I just do the content and they do all the handling and distribution, and all that sort of stuff. So it's, um, but I guarantee there's a link to it through the Instagram bio link. Um, and I'm going to have everything that I do. I, I have a number of products. I have, the Power Hour, which is a weekly one-hour education uh, thing that I've been doing for four years. Every single Power Hour that's been recorded is available for people when they purchase the Power Hour. Um, I have uh, the book, A Coach's Guide to Optimizing Movement. Um, I am doing, I'm just starting a certification seminar series that corresponds with the book. 
So you'll be able to become a, a certified coach through my system by attending the seminars and passing the exams that correspond to that. Um, I sell an online training program called Athletic Weapon, uh, which is actually my own training. It's just people can kind of train along with me. Uh, and it's, you know, there's a written out PDF and there's also an Excel sheet that people can use to help understand what we're trying to accomplish, organize it. The training sessions themselves have been videoed so people can see exactly what the drills are. They can see the intent, the intensity, all that sort of uh, uh, thing. Um, and, you know, uh, other than that, like, uh, you know, at a certain point, there's like so many damn products. I can't even remember all of them. That's why everything's kind of centered uh, in one spot, but it's all going to be available in one website very, very shortly. It's all being transferred over to one central location. Again, uh, Instagram BioLink will take it everything right now, but it's, it's been a big project to kind of centralize everything and have everything on one site uh, because there's a lot of video content, a lot of uh, education stuff. But for the most part, there's, the education stuff that I teach with Power Hour, there's the online training stuff, there's the book, and now there's also going to be this certification seminar series that I'm going to be starting uh, really like as we speak. Pat, I really appreciate you taking the time, and that was a wonderful conversation. I think people are going to get a lot out of it, probably have to listen to it twice to, to kind of sift through some of the information, but I uh, really appreciate you taking the time today. Well, Ben, I, I, I really want to thank you as well. Like, I know we've been in correspondence for a while too like you know and then you know covid comes around and kind of halts a lot of things but yeah i, I know we were talking about doing some stuff uh, at one point in time I'd, I'd love to do that and you know it's just been a real pleasure talking to you this morning it's uh it's always nice to meet people that are on a journey of you know really trying to bring themselves somewhere that's in a positive direction and that really comes across with speaking with you and that has a lot of impact on me because I think that we're both trying to be on these journeys for ourselves. Um, and knowing that there's somebody else on a similar path wearing some good solid hiking boots gives me a lot of inspiration to tie my boots up and to keep walking. Thanks, man. We'll definitely do some things in the future. That's a wrap, ladies and gents. Thank you for joining my, my conversation with Pat Davidson. As you guys see, He's an incredibly brilliant human who is on a mission to do great things in this world. And it seems like a lot of people who ultimately become experts at their craft and find at the top of that totem pole, you know, when they've reached it, maybe it's not as fulfilling as they once thought. We myopically focus on one thing and we become really, really good at it. it sounds very much like a mirror of my life. And we can really, really good at one thing. And we realize, gosh, we've let a lot of other things fall down by the wayside and we feel unfulfilled. And the journey then starts going within. And if any of you is, is experiencing this in your life right now, maybe a little bit of emptiness, maybe a lack of meaning, we're here for you. And that's why we do these podcasts. And that's why Pat was very generous in allowing us to talk about this spiritual journey that he's been on recently. And uh, thank you very much, Pat, for being so open and transparent, also for being such a light in the space of optimization of body. So if you guys did enjoy this podcast, we'd appreciate you subscribe to the podcast. We're going to come back with so many amazing guests in weeks and months to come. Today's podcast is brought to you by realmushrooms.com. Head over to realmushrooms.com slash band naked hooked up with 30% off. My suggestion is that every human starts with reishi. My suggestion is everyone should be using some sort of lion's mane to optimize brain growth. 
ultimately BDNF secretion is very much co correlated with ingestion of lion's mane. Another one I use is the five defenders, which I like when I'm feeling a little run down. You guys know I also use some cordyceps. I've actually just ordered some tremella. I've heard tremendous benefits from tremella as well. Mushrooms are these miraculous little organisms that can provide so much wellness to our system. My suggestion, if you're not already consuming mushrooms, what are you waiting for? You're behind the times, man. Pick it up, go get them, throw them back. And if you guys want a protocol, reach out to me and I will personally uh, recommend a protocol to you from Real Mushrooms. Real Mushrooms is the website itself. It's just a wealth of information on mushrooms. If you're looking for a great resource, there's no better one on the internet. Thank you very much for joining the podcast, ladies and gents. Don't forget to review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. And also don't forget to subscribe. Share this podcast with at least one person you know and love who wants to live their greatest life in a body that they absolutely love. Thank you so much for tuning in to Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Pikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.